This is Fluid Truth, and I'm attorney Shirley Skyers Thomas. We explore a simple question of whether there is equity in the justice system. The content offered in this segment is personal reflection and interpretation. The views of my guests are not necessarily the views of Fluid Truth or Quinnipiac University. For clarity, this conversation has been edited. I am pleased to introduce Orcella R. Hughes as my guest today. She is the executive director for the Prosperity Foundation which is focused on creating a unique impact in Connecticut's black communities in the areas of education, economics, and health. She's also an ordained preacher and pastor of Allen Chapel AME Church in Hartford, Connecticut. She's the owner of Serenity Ceremonies by Reverend Orcella LLC. That's a wedding officiating and premarital counseling business based out of Connecticut. Reverend O and I sat down to discuss the power of stories and the importance of our narratives. What a pleasure to have her here with us at Fluid Truth. All right, welcome again to Fluid Truth. I'm attorney Shirley Skyers Thomas. I am so pleased for my guest today, Orcella Hughes, the Reverend Orcella Hughes. Welcome, thank you for coming to talk with me. I'm so glad to have you today, sis. I am so honored to be with you, sis, and congratulations on this podcast. I'm honored to be a guest. I am so glad. So overarchingly, I like to ask, is there equity in the justice system? And I know there are different ways we can answer it, but I find it's pretty effective when we're able to share story and instances about um, our experiences and whether or not it bodes true for us, if it bodes true for us. So tell me about your experiences, but prior to doing so, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, okay. It'll be just a little too. I don't have that much to share. <laughs> um, so I am the pastor at Allen Chapel AME Church in Hartford, Connecticut. I've been pastoring since 2017. I started at St. James AME Church in Danbury, Connecticut. I was there for four years and I've been in Allen Chapel now since June uh, of this year. So nice new transition. Um, I'm also the executive director for the Prosperity Foundation in New Haven, Connecticut. It's statewide, uh, but we um, aim to strengthen Connecticut's black communities in the areas of education, health, and economics. Um, So I've been with the Prosperity Foundation since 2017, but just became the executive director this year. So lots of things happening this year. And yes, I am the um, owner and CEO of Serenity Ceremonies by Reverend Orsella, marrying couples anywhere the altar is. Um, and that's my pride. That's my baby. You are so busy. Oh, my goodness. You have a lot <laughs> on your plate. So just all three the, things. That's a couple of three businesses. Just, just three things. <laughs> <laughs> um, so all the more reason you encounter so many different people as you know, folks come before you when you have your your church congregation, when you have those that you're dealing with in the Prosperity um, Foundation. And of Mm -hmm. course you have those who are in love or are about to be in love or are jumping, whatever it is, the broom, all of that. You have all these great people Mm -hmm. that come in front of you. Do you have some perspective on what justice looks like in your arenas? Yeah, uh, you know, I I can start with the church, Um, you know, Historically, the black church has always been the foundation for justice and for being the voice of those who do not have the voice. Um, And so when I'm in that position, I'm very careful about making sure that I'm listening well to, you know, what is going on, 
not just to the congregation, but what's going on in the community and making sure that their voices are being heard at tables where I get to sit at, but they can't. And so when I'm able to do that, I'm not just going from my own experiences or my preconceived ideas, but I, I'm actually bringing real testimony and real stories. So when I'm, I'm talking to a politician or I'm speaking to you know, another organization, um, I, I want their voice to be heard because they, they're unable to make that, that happen for themselves. Then I, I, it actually links in with the Prosperity Foundation because you know I, I have this role as a as a pastor in a, in an urban community, uh, but then I get to be the executive director um, with the Prosperity Foundation. So now you know I, I have the spiritual side, but then I also know how to get to resources because <laughs> that's where we also see you know a lack of resources in our communities. Um, and I just you know even go to last night's event we had the Prosperity Foundation had an event where we were highlighting historically black colleges and universities. We had a panel of Connecticut alumni, um, ex- you know, talking about their experiences. Right in the middle of our um, panel, we were hacked, we were bombed by racist individuals. And of course that could have pivoted and changed the whole dynamic of the conversation. But I think because we're always on the side of getting justice and the inequality for ourselves, the whole panel was just like, shut it down and was able to jump right back into what we were talking about. And I think that's important that we know how to do that when it comes to fighting for justice, that we still have to stay focused and cannot get lost in, in you know, the, uh, the the outer noises, I should call it that, and, you know, the, the racist ed- uh, rhetorics that we hear so that we can really make sure that we don't lose focus on our mission. That goes in church and that goes with, you know, with the Prosperity Foundation as well. So I may, I'm, I'm blessed to be able to do it in both roles. You said something amazing just now, the ability to pivot. And I think that's such an, um, a wonderful um, ability. So as you're talking about, it was demonstrated last night. Have you seen it demonstrated in other ways? That ability to stop, let's reassess, pivot if we need to, change direction if we need to, but the fight is still on. Have you seen that? And can you share some instances where you've seen that before we even go on to some other stories? I mean, as a black person, we've seen it all our life. Um, So absolutely, Uh, I can recall being in high school. That was mm, many years ago. However, it it happened right in high school where we, we had to have guardian angels come to Hamden High School because of race riots. And once again, we had you know pivot and stay focused because the racism isn't the goal. Um, our equality is the goal. Our our education is the goal. Our mission is the goal. And that's what you cannot stay focused on the negative. You have to you have to really still find it within yourself to fight above and not go low, as you know Michelle Obama has you know eloquently told us to do. But it's not even so much about always going high, but just staying focused and keep moving forward. Um, plenty of examples of, you know, certainly equality of women, um, you know, in the church, you know, making sure that we're always fighting for the equal charge of churches, the equal pay of churches. So justice has so many layers and it has so many um, ways that we can address it. But but yeah, I think we're always in a constant struggle. But the, the idea is to always make sure that you don't lose focus on the mission. 
And you've put that so beautifully yourself just now that, you know, there is so many levels to justice. Justice, I mean, we can take this and we can take this conversation and go in so many different ways and still be right on point with justice, but you're so right about that, that it's the focus. And mm-hmm. um, now hearing what you're doing with the Prosperity Foundation, what's the focus that you're trying to infuse? What are you trying to put out to the public with that focus? We want the community or the donors of our community to be aware of the needs within Connecticut's black communities. Um, with The Prosperity Foundation was actually started because we, um, I was working at the funeral home, um, Howard Cahill Funeral Services, and I was the business manager at the time. And we just thought, oh, we need to start creating a way for families to be able to afford funerals instead of using GoFundMes. So that was, that became the driving force. You know, let's help people pay for funerals. That, it was deeper than that. When we, if you can't afford a funeral, there's some life decisions that are also not being done correctly before the funeral. So we immediately saw there was a lack of education, but not just education academically, but who am I? Education of self. What, what is my history? What is my family history? Like the obituary became the historical piece for that family. So that, that education of self became very prevalent. Um, economics, because we start off with funeral bills. Well, after you pay for a funeral, how do you live tomorrow? Now we need to start talking about generational wealth and we need to start talking about not just savings, but endowments. We need to start talking about philanthropic efforts. We need to talk about sustainability and you know how our money can live on in perpetuity beyond our lives. And then economics, I mean, um, and then health. We'd love to say go to the doctor, but do we say, <laughs> go to the mental health doctor? Do we, do we say, go see a therapist for all those things that we are going through in our community because of the injustices of access to healthcare and injustices of access to education and our own history as we're seeing more and more? We've always known that our history wasn't told right, but now other cultures are really under, they're starting to see that wasn't the right story. So that's why that education of self, that injustice of not having the right education, access to healthcare, access to mortgages and access to business loans is what drives the Prosperity Foundation to say, no, we're gonna change this impact. We're going to change how we do business. We're gonna change what justice even looks like. And if it's not given to us, then we have the ability to create it ourselves. This came out of just affording funerals. Yes. Yes. Just being able to be in the most vulnerable state and afford a mm-hmm. funeral. Now, taking that pain and taking that vulnerability and moving that into a vision for the future. I love that. I love that. So mm-hmm. now at this point, you were just, um, please continue, but you were just saying about creating endowments and generational wealth and really being able to see a path forward. What are right. the impediments that you're seeing right now? Because I'd love for you to kind of go into some uh some story about that. What are the impediments? Well, we'll see. Um, let me piece it together here. So, you know, at when, when someone passes away and we quickly want to um, leave uh, in lieu of flowers, let's leave a donation to big company XYZ. I don't want to, you know, name a company. That company is not in our community. The research that's used for that money never really hits our community. 
um, and we never really see the residuals of that said donation. Creating a fund or a foundation right here in your own state, in your own community, where someone has opened up a fund, and maybe in their family's name, maybe in the name of their um, interest, means that it's gonna stay right here. And even if you don't see the fruit of your labor, the generation after it or the generation after that will be able to say, oh, when Orsella lived, I didn't say die, when Orsella lived in 2021, she she started an, an entrepreneur fund, entre, entrepreneurship fund. And it's for black children who want to own their own business. And so my successors can give out grants or scholarships. That's what, that that's some of the impediments. Just being able to allow your name to live on beyond your life, allow your interest to live on beyond your life. And we've had some amazing stories of individuals who have started funds based on their interests or maybe just based on their own families and people have received grants from them. And here's the great thing. The recipients of these grants or maybe even scholarships have loved the fact that it came from people that look like them. So we have an annual grant give every year where we support um, small black led and black support, black led and black serving organizations in Connecticut. As we know, every time we apply, it's almost like when we go to the store and we always had this fear of a credit card not going through. Um, it's, it's no different because of the historical um, racism against black people. Whenever we applied for something and we didn't get it, it still applied to this day. An organ, a black organization goes to apply for a grant. <laughs> they may not get it just based on capacity to be able to write the grant, have the right information. Um, and so it almost becomes like I'm begging once again, a white person for money. Whereas now we have this black foundation, the prosperity foundation where we have everything set up for you. We even help you if, if there's something not right in your application, we kick it back to you and say, submit it again. And then we're able to award you with a grant. There was a testimony right there from the floor when we were handing them out. And the recipient said, I loved it the most because it came from people that looked like me. I never felt like I was begging and I never felt like this was a handout. Powerful. Because we have all felt that way at some point whenever we needed to apply for something or like I said, the credit card, we here, here we go again. I want to be embarrassed. I don't want to get turned down again. And the Prosperity Foundation is, is living off of that definition of what philanthropy is, the love of mankind. I, I love my community. I love my people. I love my. I love our future. And so we exist to help with that forever financial black plan. So what it sounds like, and I'd love for you to give me a little bit more clarity. So what it sounds like is this is for individuals. Does this also impact um, the entrepreneurs, the corporations? I know you were talking about that you have some... Um, some instances where it's going to two different types of uh, recipients. But is it intended mm -hmm. for both the individual and is it intended both for the corporation or the entrepreneur or the LLC or the small business? It's, it has the potential of in the future being for everything, all things black. At the moment, we are supporting nonprofit organizations, but for those individuals who own funds 
that's who it's for as well. So it's already starting to evolve into um, into into a larger uh, stratosphere than where it is right now. So for those individuals that want to start a fund it's because they have an interest or they want to make sure that their legacy lives on in perpetuity. But for the organizations that need, hey, need a, I need a few thousand dollars for capacity or to, to help my operation grow, it's for that purpose as well. Because if it's one thing we that I've realized in doing this work is that people love to donate towards a program. We see a program and we're like, oh, hunger, schools, you know, children, let me give it to the program. We forget that somebody needs to run it. <laughs> So, so the capacity to, to run our organizations gets ignored. And that's why we see so many of our organizations and even some of our black businesses fail because we're not being strategic in making sure that these organizations and these businesses will be able to stay open. So case in point, during COVID, 33% of black businesses in Connecticut closed. And I argue that it was probably going to close before COVID anyway, because that meant pay, pay, payroll wasn't in place, paperwork wasn't in place, taxes weren't filed. I mean, th there were so many layers <laughs> to the injustices of what we have access to. So we couldn't have closed in April of 2020 if January of 2020 wasn't in place, wasn't, you know, put together correctly. So we, we have to look at our structures and we have to look at our capacity and say, is this really, e is this equal across the board? Can my business operate like the white business? Was my loan turned down? It like, like was my loan accepted or, or not accepted? Like the white loans are, and lo loans are accepted and turned down? So many layers to the injustices that we see every day and we we can't get caught up in the noise we we have to be able to pivot and stay focused on what we're doing so so there's a whole bunch of different fights that we have you, you can protest of course you can you know boycott yep you can do that and and in addition to the the, the um the boycott and the protesting you can also just continue to do the work as well so it, it to me it's not an either it's all of them. And this is the manner in which it speaks to you, to this creation yeah. and this an intention to create wealth is what speaks to you. Right. I mean, there's got to be a group that's protesting. There's got to be a group that's boycotting. But there's got to be a group as well that's still building because we can't all be out on the street. Some of us still have to be at the table. And this is the pivot and the focus. That's right. So That's right. what is it that happened to you? And I don't want to make it sound like it may have just been one instance because our life mm -hmm. is an amalgamation of, of our, our experiences. But what happened to you that made you really want to do this? What was it that impacted your life that really opened your eyes and pushed you in the direction of wealth building and prosperity and um, building up for our community? It goes back, for me, it goes back to the funeral home. Um, when I started working there, well, prior to that, I wasn't even looking for a job. I was already in sales. I was in corporate America. I was making great money. I was good. 
And then I, I met Howard Hill and just in a networking situation. And he was just telling me the stories about the, um, um, the funerals and wanting to make an impact in the community. And it just sold me. I was like, I could be making such a bigger difference if I were in my community. I could still work and still be in my community. So I pitched to him the idea of me being his business manager. He wasn't, you know, he was looking for someone anyway, but I was already working somewhere. So the conversation, I went to him and said, consider me as your business manager. And let me tell you, and I took a huge pay cut from where I was to going to work for now, a small black business owner. But immediately the family's stories touched and turned my heart every time I met someone. Just just reading an obituary, and I know that's something that old school people tend to do, but there's so much history and our history was getting lost. Our history was not being told. Newspapers started to become expensive to put an obituary in, so what do we do? We cut the story. But that's cutting a legacy out. That, and, and you're you're cutting out information that will help someone else. So again, it goes back to that economics. And I would say to someone, don't cut the story. I don't, I don't care what it costs, don't cut that story. So then um, I suggested uh, to Howard, you know, let's put, if, if, if a family is in a really tight bond, let's put the full story on our website, no extra charge, and they can still just put the short story in the paper. But the story has to be told. And so that drives me, even as a pastor, even as a wedding officiant, and even as an executive director, what is our story? Because our story will make you believe that you deserve justice. You can't read the story of someone who grew up in New Haven, their parents worked for the repeating arms on Winchester Avenue, or they worked in Pratt and Whitney in North Haven. You can't hear those stories and still not appreciate what they went through because that generation, that baby boomer generation, they are, Viet they are our Vietnam parents who came back from Vietnam and still couldn't sit at a counter with a white person to eat dinner or could not use a bathroom because they were black. Those stories, we should not forget those stories and we shouldn't cut those stories that we must continue to tell them because our fight is in those stories. So I, I love storytelling for that reason. And that's what drives me every day. When I do weddings, I take their story and I make sure that's it. When they say, oh, I want a quick ceremony. Why? You fell in love. Why would you rush that? So many people want that feeling. And in a world where, as you see on TV, and I'm, and I'm guilty of watching some of the smut of, of black love that's on TV too, um, because they only show that, I'm in a position to show a different side of the love story. Tell me about your congregation and how they respond to you and you're in this position of, of course, authority as the pastor, but you're sitting here doing the work. So how does your congregation uh, align with you and how do they respond to you and what are some things you've heard from them? Uh, I am I'm, so I'm still getting to learn my my new congregation as I just um, arrived there in June but we immediately they they love my energy and I love them they are a hard-working church 
um, when I came in, I was very unapologetic about the type of schedule and the kind of demands that I have. And they work with me hand in hand. Um, even with my prior congregation, they, they know that I am always going to be unapologetically about the Black agenda. I am always going to be a voice. I am always going to um, make sure that if I can be somewhere that they can't get to, I will get there. Um, during the pandemic, when people were handing out food, um, if my members couldn't get to the food, I went and got the food and bring it to their homes, packed up my own car. So it's, it, it, it's once again, protecting that story. I could not even imagine seniors at our church not eating or not having food or not having the ability to go drive because there was no vaccine yet. So people didn't feel safe to go out. But you know, I would put the mask on, put the gloves on, and, and as soon as I was able to be there uh, for the congregation, they, they know that I'm passionate about the word of God. They know that I'm passionate about prayer. They know that I'm just passpassionate about people. It, it's, it's, they, they'll just randomly get a text message from me. Hey, how are you doing? That's just how I, I want to make sure that everyone is always in communication with one another and how we stay in contact with each other as well. And so at this point in your, in your journey as a pastor and now as the executive director, is there anything that you share with the next generation? When you speak to the young us's, what do you yes. say to the young us's? And perhaps that HBCU forum was, you know, a little insight into that. But what do you say to the young mm -hmm. folks that look like us? Yeah, um, I go as, as young as six years old um, to start talking to them. Um, you know, very funny story. A young person at the church, she must have been like eight or nine years old. And she was selling candy bars for her school band or something. And she walks up to me. She says, Ravenel, would you like to buy some chocolate? And I said, no. So her whole heart just, 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 just left because everyone else is buying chocolate. And so she said, would you like to buy chocolate? And I said, I don't want to buy chocolate. I want to know why you're selling chocolate. Going back to the story. So I said, tell me why you're selling chocolate. And she told me it was for a class trip was for her band and this money was going to help them with all the cost da, 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 da. and I said you know what I want to support you and I want to buy chocolate because of why you're selling the chocolate and that you you have to start them early about their purpose and their why when you do that when they're six and eight and nine years old they understand that when it's time for them to um, attend an HBCU don't just ask me to give to my school. Here's why you need to give to my school. I want my school to never fall into a mis uh, not having accreditation. I, I, I want my school so that my children can attend there. And you know, even in church, you know, I just pivot right here. You know, when I got to my first church, it was it was in about to be in bankruptcy. It was you know threatened to be closed. And the first thing I told the church when I arrived was, you know, we don't have a money issue here. Just don't, don't think of a foreclosure or bankruptcy as a money issue. It's a management issue. It's a story issue. Some of you stayed to keep the church open. Why? Tell me why. And I said, so now tell, your, tell people that. So for those first two months when people were coming to visit the church, 
Um, I didn't make the money an issue. Of course, we, we had to raise money, but that wasn't the story. The story was why this church was founded. Uh, who still, who laid the brick? Who laid the pews? You know, you got to tell, I, t I kept telling that story. So for generations after, generations, you know, after me, when I'm gone from this church, you have to keep telling the story. And when we do that, we, we just peel back so many layers of who we are. And, and, you've, and again, you go back and you feel that justice. You're like, I, I am worth saving. My, my church is worth saving. My, my school is worth saving because of the story. And I'm gonna fight for that story. And I think you're absolutely right because it creates a validation. We don't all need validation, yes. but it creates a validation creates with it. the story and that it's yours. Mm -hmm. Right. I was like, you're not just selling chocolate. If you are, you, you're selling, you're, you're, you're selling chocolate. Yes, that's the outcome. But, the, but the product is you becoming a stronger clarinet player in your band. The story is you coming together and with the rest of the band and you will get to travel. You will now have this experience. This one candy bar is not just candy. It's your skill, it's your trip, it's your experience, it's your connection, it's your network, it's bigger than that. And after that, she started telling people the story before telling the candy. And she sold it all out that day. <laughs> I hope you bought one. Girl, I bought five. That's what I'm talking about, because it was a good story. <laughs> <laughs> because she learned. But even, but even with my high school students, you know, when they go off to college, I say, you know, don't go to college to get a good job. Go to college to learn how to create the job. You will never, if you, when you create your own job, you will never be laid off. So learn right now how to create the system. If I go back to my 20 year old self, I bet girls create the business. <laughs> Don't go get the job. <laughs> and that's the thing. I feel like it's very consistent what we're talking about. The narrative, yeah. the story, the creation, and even going back yeah. to why you do what you do. And yeah. you know, some boycott, some have to protest, but there's this power mm -hmm. in creation because we maintain the story and we expel the story. We share the story. And in that, I, I told I tell my nieces all the time: don't sit on YouTube, create your YouTube channel. So you have been watching YouTube enough; you know how to create the channel. So I, you know what I did? I went out and bought them a ring light. <laughs> I set them up in my um, loft, and I said, "Now just do something silly," because that's what makes it on YouTube. Mm -hmm. They were coloring, coloring. We didn't post it yet, but I had to give them that experience of being a creator. If you can, we can only fight the injustices by creating our own table and our own path. And that's truly one of the pathways. And, and I see that very, very clearly. And I'm, I'm gonna uh, pause here for just a second, in just a second, mm -hmm. but it's really um, relatable to say that when we're not at the table, when we're not invited to the table, you pivot and mm -hmm. you focus. You pivot mm -hmm. and you focus. So, right. I love that. So, anything else before we wrap up? Sis, thank you for this platform. And 
I can't wait to hear more stories of how people talk about justice because there's so many layers to it. Um, and if and if I could just inspire the audience just to continue to be your authentic self every day. As the word tells us, you know, those who are guided by the flesh, death will come. And those who are guided by the spirit, life and peace will come. So be your authentic self and live by the spirit. The spirit will give you the right response, the right reaction, so that you don't have to pivot and go off. You can pivot and stay focused. I love that. Reverend O, Mm -hmm. Roselle Hughes, thank you so much. Thank you, sweetheart. Thank you, thank you, honey. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening in today. Special thanks to our producer, Johnny Marquardt, and executive producer, David DeRoche. Music is provided by Audio Hero from the Jazz Lounge album. To learn more about all of our podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. You can listen to our podcast on the platform or app of your choice. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at QUPodcast. If you have a story to share or something you want to talk about, find us on social media or shoot us an email. That address is QUPodcast at qu.edu. On the next show, I'll be sitting down with Javiel Foy, Quinnipiac student. All right, that's it for today. Till next time.